0: Holy Father, we thank You, Lord, for this time of the week that You've carved out so that we can worship You, Lord, so that You can speak to us. Father, I pray in these moments before You give us Your Word that You will open our eyes to see Your truth, that You'll open our ears to hear the voice of Your Spirit speaking to us. Help us to hear, Lord. Help us to take it into our heart. Help us, Father, to be transformed tonight. Dear God, I confess that I have so many weaknesses, and You know them better than anyone. And Father, I pray that in despite of my many weaknesses, that You will speak to these wonderful people tonight, that You will touch their hearts and change their lives by the power of Your Word and by the grace of Your Spirit. Uh, We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for uh, being with us tonight. Really excited to preach. I'm preaching on one of my favorite psalms. Uh, Let me ask, did you ever, uh, do you know that the manner in which you come before the Lord matters? That your attitude and the way you prepare your heart when you're coming before the Lord can really make a difference? Our text today is Psalm 131. Uh, Psalm 131 is a song of ascent. It is a song that was meant to be sung. It is a song that reveals David's heart. It is this uh, awesome, amazing confession full of emotion and and just a personal confession that we get uh, this amazing glimpse into David's heart. We also see it is a charge to all of Israel. And in working through this psalm, we are going to encounter something that is universally just applicable to all of us. We are going to see the psalmist taking this amazing posture before the Lord. We are going to see him intentionally and deliberately just humbling himself and coming before the Lord, bringing his soul in his heart, preparing himself just to be with God. This psalm stresses the importance of our posture before Him. So I want you to think as we work our way through this psalm tonight, I want you to think of your heart and your soul and what your posture is before the Lord day by day and moment by moment. So let's just jump right into it. Psalm 131. And God's Word reads, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So we are getting this amazing glimpse into how David approaches the Lord in this moment. And the first thing I want to show you is in verse 1, we see him take this posture of humility. And as we read through verse 1, we're going to see that taking this posture of humility through, uh, before the Lord entails uh, the heart, it's a matter of the eyes, and it's a matter of our walk. So a posture of, of humility before the Lord is a matter of our heart. He says it, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. And what does that mean? What does it mean when he says, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up? Well, he's not saying that he's depressed. He's not saying that he's bummed out or down in the dumps or dejected. Actually, the nuance of that verb to be lifted up in this context is conveying the fact that his heart is not haughty. It's not full of pride. He's somehow been able to get rid of all of the self-seeking and all of the self-glorifying. He's coming before the Lord with True, honest humility. And this is a huge statement to be making. Because if pride is in our lives, it's because it has first taken a hold in our hearts. If pride is coming out of our mouths through our words, if pride is coming out through our hands as we act and do things, if pride is in our minds and the way we think, it's because it has first taken hold in our hearts. So daily, when the pride just gushes out of us like a waterfall, it's because it first started with a, there's a trickling stream in our hearts. So to work the pride out of our hearts is to transform our thinking and to transform our speech and to transform the way we act. And to take this posture of wholehearted humility before the Lord is to acknowledge that God alone is the one who is exalted, that He is our sovereign, that we are His subjects, and that His will for us is better than our will for ourselves. And that's one of the main implications of that statement, that my heart is not lifted up. It's the fact that He has resigned His will over to the will of God. In uh, talking about that portion, the first section there of the first verse... And that specific implication, that resigning your heart, taking this posture of heartfelt humility before the Lord means resigning your will over to God. John Calvin says this. In this, he, meaning God through the psalmist, in this he teaches us a very useful lesson. In one by which we should be ruled in life. To be contented with the lot which God has marked out for us to consider what He calls us to, and not to aim at fashioning our own lot. Let me just say it again. In this, He teaches us a very useful lesson, and one by which we should be ruled in life, to be contented with the lot which God has marked out for us, to consider what He calls us to, and not to aim at fashioning our own lot. As I was thinking through that quote, it just dawned on me. That is not a very popular message in America today, is it? I mean, to submit your life and your will to someone other than yourself. Not to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and pioneer your own path through life. It seems like such an anti-American thing to say, but it's a biblical thing to say. So if you're going to take this posture of heartfelt humility before the Lord, you're going to have to learn to be content with God's calling for you and His will for your life. You're going to need to be content with His calling for you to honor Him with personal worship and prayer and Bible study, spending time in the Word with Him, letting His presence transform you more and more into the daily likeness of Christ. You're going to have to be content with the calling to serve the community and invest in the local church, which is so precious to Jesus Christ that he calls it his bride. You're going to have to be content with the calling to be a faithful and godly husband and wife and father and mother and brother and sister and neighbor and servant. You're going to have to be content with God's call for you to be a a light in this dark world of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to your neighbors and to your co-workers and to your family. You're going to have to perceive God's specific call for you. And you're going to have to have the faithfulness and the courage to follow Jesus. Or, you can fashion your own lot. You know what causes someone to fashion their own lot as John Calvin talked about? A lofty and a prideful heart. You see we're all prideful by nature. We all it's so easy and comfortable for us just to do our own thing to our own glory. But we have a perfect example of this humble posture in Jesus Christ. So let's look at the humble posture that Jesus takes before his heavenly Father quickly. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 we're going to start in verse 3. And God's Word reads, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And hear this, verse 6, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is amazing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the divine Son of God, takes such a humble posture before his Father that he is willing to consider himself, his relationship with the Father not of equality that He has allowed Himself to be emptied to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Christ didn't use the advantage of His own divinity as grounds for avoiding His earthly suffering. Instead, He comes before His Father and He says, Your will be done. And He takes a human body and He suffers, He goes to the cross and He's tortured on our behalf. Let me ask, if Jesus takes this humble-hearted posture before the Father. And if David comes before the Father in humility, shouldn't you and I as well? A lowly posture is a worthy posture. So while approaching God in humility is a matter of the heart, uh, the text also shows us that it's a matter of the eyes. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. What is David saying when he says that his eyes are not raised too high? Well, he's using this imagery of the eyes for a specific reason. Because the eyes look at what the heart desires. When our hearts are prideful, our eyes are gazing at things that we were never intended to stare at. When our hearts are prideful, our eyes are consumed with lusting after a neighbor's house or a friend's TV or going to your job and wanting to glorify yourself above all other things. And let me just show you what God has to say about our haughty eyes. Proverbs chapter 6. God has weighty and strong words about our haughty eyes. Starting in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The first thing in this list of things that the Lord hates, which are abominable in His sight, Our haughty eyes. He hates them. He hates our haughty eyes because they extend from a prideful heart and they lead to prideful actions. So when when your eyes are lifted up, you're approaching life, you're approaching other people, you're approaching God as if you are the most important thing in this entire universe and God just hates it. We see that principle clearly illustrated in Daniel chapter 5. Let me just tell you what's going on in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, in Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar is on the throne of Babylon. Babylon's the big dominant world empire. Uh, before him was King Nebuchadnezzar, another prideful king, but Belshazzar's there and he's in his palace and he's partying with his buddies. And Belshazzar's in there and they're drinking. They took these sacred vessels, which were taken from the temple in Jerusalem which were set aside for the holy worship of the Lord, and they're filling them with wine and getting drunk and having a great time. Well, all of a sudden, this hand just appears in the thin air and writes something on a wall. It writes, many, many, tekel parson. And Belshazzar sees it, and he freaks out. And eventually, they bring Daniel in to interpret the words that the hand inscribed. So Daniel comes in, and he is in the process of of telling him what these words mean. But before, he asks him to remember King Nebuchadnezzar. He gives him a little history lesson. And that's where we pick it up. In verse 18, Daniel 5. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before Him. Whom He would He killed, and whom He would He kept alive. Whom He would He raised up, and whom He would He humbled. Verse 20, But when His heart was lifted up, and His spirit was hardened, so that He dealt proudly, He was brought down from His kingly throne, and His glory was taken from Him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and His mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heavens until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. Verse 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Skip down to verse 30. In the process there, he explains the wording that the hand inscribed and how this is going to mean Belshazzar's condemnation. We pick it up in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. A haughty posture before the Lord is detestable in his sight. He hates it and he will deal with it. It is serious business. So when David comes before the Lord and he intentionally and deliberately lowers his eyes, he takes this humble posture before God. He understands that God is the one to be exalted and that He is God's humble subject. That His will is to be given over to the Lord's will. Won't you follow the psalmist's lead and intentionally lower your eyes? A lowly posture is a worthy posture. So while verse 1 has showed us that uh, taking this posture of humility is a matter of the heart and the eyes, we also see that it's a matter of our walk with the Lord. Uh, Verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Here David's making just a stark distinction, understanding that there are some things that are appropriate for him and there are some things that just aren't. There are things out there, there are pursuits that are too great and too marvelous for him, that are beyond him, that are designated, that are only suitable for the Lord. And David's not concerned with those things. It's amazing. He's not going after these things which are too great and too marvelous. Instead, he's so... At peace, just being faithful to what God has called him to. As I was studying, I came across uh, an Old Testament scholar, and his name is John Golden Gay. And as I was reading some of what he had to say about Psalm 131, I just came across this little nugget of truth that it was one of those awesome little things you might come across and you feel like you could just chew on it for a week. And what Golden Gay says and in uh, regard to this portion of uh, verse 2, is this. He says, The difference between God and us is that God never thinks He is us. And I just thought that was so awesome. The difference between God uh, and us is that God never thinks He is us. The implication, of course, is that we oftentimes think that we're God, consciously or unconsciously. Us, His created beings, are walking around this place called the planet earth that god created for his glory and we're walking around exalting ourselves making it all about us all the time and putting ourselves in this high position reserved only for the lord almighty and dragging him down to this lowly position where we belong the difference between god and us is that god never thinks he is us So in verse 1, we see this cycle of how pride can infiltrate us, how it takes root in our hearts, and then it manifests itself through our eyes and gets us lusting after things that are not good for us. And then we act, and it becomes a part of our walk. And remember, this is David. He is the anointed king over Israel. This is God's chosen man. He is Israel's champion and, and their warrior. If anyone had cause to have a haughty heart or lifted eyes or lofty preoccupations, it was David. And he made a lot of mistakes, but in this moment, he resigns himself to humility. Like you and I, he often wandered from humble companionship with the Lord off to self-glorification and pridefulness. But here he's learned to humble his heart to lower his eyes and to submit his walk to the Lord. The question that each of us have to wrestle with today is are we doing the same? So I just ask, where is your heart? Is it prideful? Is it haughty? Is it contrite? Is it humble? Where are your eyes? Are they lifted up? Are you gazing at something that God never intended for you to look at? Are you so... Consumed with looking at uh, this goal of, of, of getting what you want and glorifying yourself, or are you gazing at the Lord and learning to be more like Jesus? How is your walk? Are you walking towards things that are for your glory, or walking towards things that are for the Lord's glory? One thing that we can take from the text is that following Jesus and following David means killing your pride. And embracing this posture of humility before the Lord. A lowly posture is a worthy posture. So as the poet is singing this song, and as he's working the pride out of his heart, his personal confession continues in verse 2. And in verse 2, we see uh, that he is now taking this posture of stillness and dependence before the Lord. Verse 2 reads, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So we see that there's real value in just calming yourself and taking this posture of stillness before the Lord. I wanted to just ask, has anyone ever uh, spent a lot of time at a lake? I'm sure a lot of you have, Right? Um, I was coming across my studies, and I came across this commentator who used this just amazing illustration. He gave you this great image of what was going on in David's soul at that moment when he wrote those words and was singing those things in verse two. And he, he says that at that moment, David's soul is like the calm surface of a lake. It's just beautiful image. I had a friend who owned a lake house. He owned a lake house on Lake Sakandaga. Eastern New York. Uh, Lake Sakandaga is actually right next door to Lake George. So all the tourists and all the boaters and all the craziness kind of was at Lake George, which meant Lake Sakandaga was just a really peaceful, serene type of place. And we used to go up there all the time on weekends to, to wakeboard and to tube and to boat around and stuff. And sometimes the water would be pretty choppy. Sometimes the water would be really rough. Sometimes it would just be nice and calm. Uh, but I remember oftentimes getting up early in the morning and walking down the dock, to, uh, down to the lake, and the surface of the lake would just be like a sheet of glass. I mean, there were no disturbances. There were no disruptions. It was just peaceful and calm and quiet and serene. In this moment, David's soul is like, the surface of that lake. He's smoothed it out. He's rid himself of any prideful delusions that he's something that he's not. Uh, There are no ripples of worry. There are no currents of uh, selfish ambition. There are no waves of anxiety going on. He is silent and he is at rest with the Lord. Uh, My first semester at seminary was uh, just one of those seasons in my life that was so overwhelming and stressful. and I'm sure you guys all have had those times. Uh, I'm sure you could think of probably a million of them just off the top of your head. Uh, for me, what that season looked like is uh, I just moved out there. I was uh, taking theology classes and reading a lot of theology books, and I had, I had never had any kind of theological training, and I was being exposed to all this terminology that I didn't know what it meant. and it, I was working my way through that and trying to learn Greek and I was engaged at the time and we were planning a wedding and I was coming home on weekends and I had a part-time job during the week and I remember feeling like oh man I cannot waste a single second of a single day during this week I just can't there aren't enough hours in the day to do all the things that I have to do and I was so overwhelmed and so stressed out um well, part of my coursework that first semester is to take this orientation type of class where they really kind of show you how to take care of your heart and your soul and your relationship with the Lord during this crazy seminary experience. And so I'm taking that class, and part of the coursework was to go on what they call a soul Sabbath. And here's what a soul Sabbath looked like. They put us in a van, and they drove us to a convent, And it was this beautiful building on this beautiful, huge plot of land. And the people that lived in the convent full time, uh, part of their vows were that they didn't speak. They were silent for a good part of the day. So they brought us here and they gave us each our own little cubicle type room. And they said, all right, no books, no studying. Uh, Just take your Bible with you. You can hang out in that room. You can walk around the grounds. You're not allowed to speak. Just spend the day with the Lord. Sadly, I was pretty uh, bad. I, I had a bad attitude about it, to be honest with you. When I went, I was just thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I cannot afford to blow an entire day doing nothing, making no progress. But because it was part of my coursework, I went. And for the first time in my life, I intentionally spent an entire day in stillness and quiet reading my Bible, praying, meditating on the Word, reflecting on what God was saying, listening to the voice of God's Spirit. And at the end of the day on the van ride home, I just remember thinking, wow, I just never knew how much I needed that. Now, I'm not necessarily saying you need to go take a day off from your job, hang out at a convent and not speak for an entire day. But when was the last time that you deliberately came before the Lord in stillness and quiet? The Lord tells us in Psalm 46, be still and just know that I'm God. When was the last time that you quieted your soul in preparation for meeting with Him? If you're anything like me, you may think things like that. That sort of practice is kind of weird and and unnatural and just bizarre at first, but David shows us that there's real value in taking this posture of stillness. A lowly posture is a worthy posture. Uh, So just as verse 2 shows us that David is valuing this posture of stillness and quiet and calm before the Lord, we also see that he's valuing this posture of dependence. And this is my favorite part of the psalm when he uses this just amazing illustration of the weaned child he says but i've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me now likely the nuance of that word to be a a weaned child is not talking about a child that's totally weaned that's no longer breastfeeding that's uh, done with that stage of life, it's most likely referencing a child that has just finished feeding and is in their mother's arms, uh, cared for and protected and nourished and at peace and totally satiated in the provision that his mother gave him. A few weeks ago, I was able to hold my niece. Uh, my wife's sister and her husband just had a baby. Four month old little baby Harper. She's a beautiful little girl. And I was holding her, and um, I don't have a lot of experience with babies, so I just kind of look at them and admire the fact that they're babies. I, I don't do much more than that, but it, it really did strike me that this baby was just totally helpless. And then she kind of just reached out her tiny little arm, and she opened her tiny little hand and wrapped her tiny little fingers around the top of one of mine and I was just thinking, man, she's so tiny. And then she gave me this squeeze, and it was the lightest little squeeze ever. And it really just amazed me how dependent this baby was for everything. That this baby is totally and completely powerless to provide for herself or to care for herself aside from her parents providing and caring for her. What must it be like To have our very hearts and souls like a baby in God's arms, completely giving ourselves over to Him, knowing that He is a faithful Father that can care for us so well. This sort of posture involves submitting to Him and not being dependent upon ourselves. Uh, So far, the song song of David here has showed us to take a posture of humility. It's also emphasized the importance of taking a posture of stillness and dependence upon Him. And in verse 3, we're going to see that He also charges us to take a posture of hope. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great, And too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And we see this shift from the individual to the collective. That David is no longer just exposing his own confessional Uh, posture before the Lord, but now he's charging all of Israel to experience what he himself has just experienced. To kill their pride, to come before the Lord in stillness and dependence, and to hope in Him forevermore. But how do we get there? How do we get to this place where we are able to hope in the Lord? What does that look like? What does that process look like? Well, David has just showed us. It means humbling and submitting our hearts. It means lowering our eyes. It means resigning our walks to His will. It means calming our soul in His presence and being totally dependent on Him, knowing that He is the only one worth hoping in, and He is the only one that can provide for us in ways that we need to be provided for. If you take a gander across the page to Psalm 130, Uh, The psalmist of 130 knows this principle just so well. Uh, The psalmist from this uh, particular psalm begins by just crying out from the depths, pleading with God that he might hear him and give him mercy. He says in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy." Skip down to verse five. "I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in His word, in His word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him there's plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist knows that even in the stresses of life, only true salvation can come from our God. And the only appropriate posture to take before him is one of honest hope. A lowly posture is a worthy posture. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor. He was a pastor, he was a student of the Word, and he was a preacher. In fact, he was such a good preacher that he's often referred to now as the the Prince of Preachers. I mean, this man was gifted. He had just an unbelievably powerful ability to take a text of Scripture, to explain it, to expose it, to apply it to his listeners so that they just encountered the truth of God. When Charles Spurgeon was commenting on Psalm 131, he had this to say. It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Why do you think he would have said something like that? How can some short, simple, concise little psalm take us so long to learn? It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Well, my theory, for what it's worth, is that Spurgeon understood that our tendency is to impose our wills pridefully upon God rather than humbly accepting His will for us. He understood that our inclination is is to speed through daily prayer and Bible study or to blow it off entirely rather than to come before Him in stillness and independence, expecting to meet our holy God and to be transformed. I think He knew that our tendency was to hope in ourselves rather than to hope in the Lord. And so in His estimation, this is one of the shortest Psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. When we began, I just kind of introduced the psalm, and I said, um, this is a psalm about our posture before the Lord. And then I asked you to just be thinking through the posture you take day by day, moment by moment, as you meet with the Lord. So I ask you now, what are you going to do with the truth of Psalm 131. You can ignore it. You can forget about it as soon as you leave. Or you can really take it to heart and make it a priority in your life every day. The goal of, stu- of the psalm is to stir us to the posture of humility, to a posture of stillness, to a posture of dependence, and to a posture of a hope before our God. And to remind us that a lowly posture is a worthy posture. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I just confess that I'm one of the worst at all of this. And I pray that You'll give me brokenness of spirit, humility of heart, dependency upon You, And I pray, Lord, that you will meet with me in new ways every day. And Father, I just extend that prayer to everyone here. Dear God, we are so desperate for you. We are so lost without you. We need you so very much, Lord. Please meet with us. Please change us. Help us to serve you well. Father, I pray that You'll do all of these things, that You'll work in our hearts, in our lives, and in our church for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.